I was standing in the back during the music, and one of the great things uh, I realized today for the first time, one of the great things about sitting in the back was being able to look forward and see all these little ones. So many of you who have uh, kids maybe four and under, right, you hold them while you're singing. And while you're holding them, they're looking back <laughs> at everybody here. So if you're in the back, you know, you're, you're singing these songs full of truth, and you're seeing all these beautiful little faces. So keep doing that. It was a real treat for, for me, I know, and for my wife this morning. Well, we're to chapter 38 in the book of Job. If you are using one of the Bibles that we provide, that you'll find on one of the uh, seats in front of you, underneath, you'll find Job 38 on page 283, page 283, and by chapter 38, uh, five people have shared their opinions with Job. Five different people have spoken up. What do you say to someone who's on their deathbed? I don't know if you've been in that position or not. What do you say to someone when there's some of the last words that they might hear from you? What do you say to someone like Job who has lost his livelihood, who has lost his health? He had ten children, you know. He lost them. Seven sons and three daughters. What do you say to someone in Job's shoes? What do you say to someone like Job who is innocent but has suffered so greatly? So five people have said things to him. In chapter 2, his wife spoke to him. In chapter 2, his wife said, Job, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. She said in chapter 2, verse 9. In chapter 4, his friend Eliphaz said, Who that was innocent ever perished, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, Job, you have sown trouble. You've been a bad guy. You look good on the outside. You're obviously dirty on the inside. You've done something terrible. You're not confessing it. God's getting you for it. You're reaping what you've sown. In chapter 8, his friend Bildad said, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children, Job, if your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their sin. You know why your children are dead, don't you, Job? It's because they, like you, had unconfessed sin and God has dealt with them justly. In chapter 8, I'm sorry, 11, his friend Zophar spoke up. And Zophar said, But oh, that 
God would speak and open his lips to you, Job, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. It should be worse for you, Job. You're whining and complaining about this, but this isn't even what you deserve. So thankfully, we looked at this last week. Better things were said by a young man named Elihu. He was God's instrument. He's a faulty preacher, like all preachers are, but he was used by God. He was used by God to prepare Job's heart to hear from God. He said in chapter 33, God is greater than man, Job. He said in verse 12 of chapter 33, God is greater than man, Job. And then he went on and said, very profoundly in chapter 36, verse 15, He delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. In other words, he was telling Job, in disagreement with his friends, your suffering is actually for your good, Job. This affliction is something that God is using to deliver you. He's using this adversity to open your ears. Good will come from it, Job. Elihu, we looked at that. He was on the right track. But Job had not asked any of these people to speak. You never read that. He never asked any of them their opinion. Gee, Bildad, what do you think about this situation? Elihu, you've been quiet. What do you have to say? He did not ask a single one of them their opinion. In fact, he pleaded with them to stop speaking once they started. He said, why can't you guys just go back to that first week? That was, that was, your, that was your shining moment. Before you opened your mouths. For a week you just sat with me. You cried with me. You prayed for me. You helped me. You, you, you came under and shouldered this burden with me. But now you're talking. I can't get you to stop. The things that you're saying are not helpful. Throughout the book, isn't this clear? There is only one that Job wants to hear from. And he's, ple- he's pleading with the boys to stop. And he's pleading with one to start. There is one that he wants to hear from. There is only one opinion that Job cares about. Only one opinion in the universe that Job cares about. But the one voice that Job longs to hear from has not uttered even a whisper. God has been silent. He's left Job in the dark. He has not picked up the phone. He has not responded. He has not spoken to him. Job is like a kite in a windstorm being torn to pieces. And he's asking God, where are you? I've got all these voices except the one I desperately need 
and desperately want nothing. Until chapter 38. Finally, in chapter 38, God speaks. It can be four chapters worth in the first half, chapters 38 and 39. The first half of God's words will be the subject of this morning's sermon. We'll take two weeks to look at God's words. But we'll find out what, what will God, after all that silence... What will God say to this innocent sufferer? But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Oh God, thank you. We have so much more light than even our brother Job had. I thank you for inspiring whoever wrote this book to, to write it down for us so that we could learn and be helped and be changed. So God, would you help us today enlighten our minds, enlarge our hearts for you, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So God is going to respond to Job. So it's going to be helpful Real quick to remember what Job has said. What's God responding to? What, have been, what has been the gist of, the word, of Job's words that God is now going to speak to? So let me just give you a sampling. Starting back in chapter 3, when Job first spoke. Here's what God is responding to. These kinds of things. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? Job said, in chapter 3, verse 16, why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not? Chapter 30, verse 21, you have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Chapter 7, verse 20, if I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why? That's his question. Over and over and over and over again. Why? Why, God, why have you picked a fight with me? I have not picked a fight with you, God. I don't want to fight with you, God. I'm no match for you, God. Why are you pick? It feels like you're picking on me, God. Why isn't Bildad suffering like this? Or Zophar? This guy's a piece of work. He deserves it, not me. Why? Why is this happening? God, why are you? He says it in these words. Why are you treating me like an enemy? Like, this is how you should treat your enemies, God, not me. God, you know, and God does know. I'm blameless. I'm upright. I fear you. I turn away from evil. God knows that. That was God's testimony about Job to Satan. 
Job. He's a blameless guy, upright. He fears me. He turns away from evil. And Job's saying, right, exactly. So why, why, why? And we face the same problem. We ask the same questions anytime we're confronted with the innocent suffering. Whether it's you or a family member or a friend or, or someone or some people you hear about on the news. When we see the innocent suffer and we believe that there is a God and He is good, we will ask, why? This makes no sense, God. Whether it's our own suffering, whether it's the people that we love, when we're faced with it, we inevitably ask, why? We hear about famine. As we're eating all our food, we ask, why? Remember years ago, what was it in 2004, sometime around there, there was an earthquake and a tsunami, and we saw the pictures of places like Indonesia and the, the Philippines, and we, we read about hundreds of thousands of people just gone. We were asking, why, God? The terrorist attacks, adultery, cancer, child abuse and neglect, abortion, war, earthquakes, flood. I mean, you name it, if we're not immune to it and we're faced with it, even on some peripheral level, we ask God, why? Why, God? Why me? Or why him? Or why her? Or why this little child? Or why these innocent little children? Why now? Why this long? Why in this way? How can this be good, God? That's what's behind the why, right? How can this be good? Give me a break. How can you be trusted, God? Why? Why aren't you answering me? And that's Job's question over and over again. God, I'm, I'm in this. I'm calling out to you. I'm crying out to you. You're not answering. Why? 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 Job asked these questions. Job's wife, I'm sure, asked these questions. His three friends are asking these questions. They're trying to answer these why questions. And in chapters 38 through 41, God responds. That's what he's responding to. The why. Now let me tell you something that is really important. Before we get into what God doesn't say and what God does say to Job, this is something very important to keep in mind. By chapter 41, when God is done speaking, Job is totally 
satisfied with God's reply. Now, the reason I say that now is because some of you will not be satisfied with God's reply. It won't be enough for you. So I want you to know and to remember now, it was enough for Job. You weren't the one suffering like Job was suffering. This wasn't any more personal for you than it was for Job. Job got all the heat. Job got all the fire. He got all this suffering had to offer. And I'm telling you, we'll see. I don't want to spoil all of it. But I'm telling you, we'll see. By the end of chapter 41, Job's good. I'm satisfied. I'm content. I've heard exactly what I need to hear. But some of you, you're going to want more. And you might not be satisfied with God's reply. It's weird. I found myself, I'm just going to be transparent in this way. I found myself studying this and myself not being content with God's reply. Thinking, if you would have said this, it would preach better on Sunday. <laughs> feel, isn't that terrible? Feeling like, God, I don't feel like you're giving, you, this is not a lot to work with. I mean, no, that's not true on one level, but that's just, that's just how I felt. God, there's, there's other things you could have said, and I'm wondering, why didn't you say this? You, and you could have said this, and oh, if you would have said that, or if you would have done this, I mean, oh, that would preach, but this, I don't know. I'm just going to put this out there, and I don't think people are going to be satisfied with this. But God's wisdom's higher than my wisdom. His ways are higher than my ways. It's going to be one of the points here. It was enough for Job. It satisfied Job. That's amazing. God is great. And you are not. That's what God's going to say. God is great. I am not great. That doesn't mean that God is significant and you're insignificant. But it means that God is big and you are small. It means that God is great and you and I are not great. It means that God is the ultimate reality in the universe and beyond. What God does not say, before we read what God actually says to Job, consider what God does not say to Job. Now, these are words that we might be expecting to hear from God. Words that Job, oh good God is speaking. I bet Job had an idea what God was going to say. 
Sure, Job had ideas of what he wanted God to say. And how he wanted God to say it. I always have expectations like that from people, from God. Things that I want him to say and I want you to say. And how I want him to say it and how I want you to say it. Of course, Job had those desires. What was Job expecting to hear from God? Here are some things that God did not say. Four things. Number one, God does not apologize. That's striking. God does not apologize. He does not apologize for the trial that Job has gone through, and he does not apologize for his silence. God has been intentional about his silence. It's probably months that Job has been rock bottom. It's probably been months that he's felt like he was going to die emotionally and physically. Why, why, why? He's been crying out to God. No answer, no answer. And that was not an accident on God's part. God was not stranded on a mountain without cell reception. (laughs) He doesn't come to Job and say, sorry, Job, I've got myself in a real bind and just busy and work and you know how it goes. That your, your email, it just it went into the junk folder. I don't know how it got there. They're usually in my inbox. This is kind of embarrassing. I'm God. I should be able to manage these things. I'm sorry. There's no apology. And I mean, this has been agonizing for Job. Chapter 23, verse 3 and 8. Oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I might come even to his seat. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. This silence has been unbearable, and God does not apologize for this. So it's all part of his goodness toward Job. Number two, God does not explain Job's suffering. Aren't these things that you might expect God to say in a response? He does not explain Job's suffering. I made a bet with Satan. He doesn't disclose what happened in chapters 1 and 2 that you and I know about. That there was a wager between Satan and God. Satan said, oh, you do this and this will happen. And God said, no, if you do that, that won't happen. And Satan said, you want to bet? Let's go. Let's try. And God says, fine. And he gives him permission to torment Job in all these ways. God does not tell Job that. Listen, I know this has been really difficult, but here's what's been going on. And here's how this all started. And here's what happened. God does not pull Job off the pages to read the book. He just comes to him in the book. He doesn't fast forward. He doesn't rewind. He does not explain Job's suffering. Ever. Ever. Number three, God does not acknowledge Job's suffering. God does not even acknowledge Job's suffering. 
We'll read chapters 38, 39, 40, 41. He does not even mention Job's suffering. He does not validate his emotions. He does not come alongside him and say something like, listen, Job, I know you have been through a lot. There's nothing. It's like he didn't even suffer. So God does not acknowledge his suffering. He does not explain his suffering. He does not apologize for anything that he's done. And number four, God does not answer Job's questions. This does not sound like good counseling, does it? God is in a class of his own. And he does things that you and I cannot do. He pulls off things that you and I cannot pull off. And all, what does the word say? All his ways are perfect. Even when he doesn't apologize to Job, doesn't explain his suffering, doesn't even acknowledge his suffering, and doesn't answer any of his questions, but rather completely changes the subject. And he's dealing with Job perfectly. Gives him exactly what he needs. You should be getting excited to read this now. That's great. Whole sermons on what he didn't say. <laughs> well, what did he say? Are you ready? Turn to chapter 38. What did he say? It's not going to be what Job was expecting. It's not going to be what I'm expecting. We'll start with verses 1 through 3 because God's response really gets going in verse 4. So here's these introductory verses. Verse 1, we'll take them one at a time. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Holy smokes, what's this? Let's just break it down first. The Lord answered Job. That's good news. That's good news for Job. The Lord's going to answer him. Finally, what Job has been waiting, 37 chapters, friends. Can you imagine his excitement, his relief? When God begins to speak to him. His friends had made it sound to Job like God would not speak to him until he repented of some secret sin that didn't even exist, Job knew. And Job, by the, by the time he's done talking, he, he sounds resigned to die before he will hear from God. But the Lord answers Job. Graciously and mercifully, the Lord answers Job. And look with me. How, how did God respond to Job? Out of the whirlwind. Leave it to God, right? So God comes and speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. What's that? Well, if we were to look back at the chapters right before this, the chapters that we looked at last week, Elihu had just finished speaking to Job. And I think that it's clear as you read through Elihu's speech, that during his long speech, the six chapters worth, 
while Elihu is making that speech to Job, a storm rolled in. Complete with rain and thunder, clouds and lightning, the works. In fact, while Elihu is making his speech, he draws attention to this storm that's rolling in. Look at the heavens, he said, and behold the clouds, he said in 35 verse 5. And then in chapter 37 verse 2 to Job, Elihu said, Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. So you see what's happening? There's this illustration as a lie he was speaking. The storm is moving in. And there's the rumbling of thunder. There's the striking of lightning. So picture it. The storm is gathering. The wind is swirling. And then audible words come out of the wind. Please don't just nod at that. This is not a a Lord of the Rings movie. I mean, wake up. That's ridiculous. I mean, we've seen some we've seen some good storms lately. I lived in Joplin, misery for a year, and I saw some storms I will never forget. When I was a child. We lived in Nebraska, and we lived in a, in a mobile home park, and there was, a, there was a spring when a tornado came right behind our mobile home in the middle of the night. I'll never forget it. It was like four years old. It sounded like a train. Our mobile home went up and slammed down on the ground. So this is a massive storm that's rolling in, and I've never heard this. And then an audible voice comes out of the clouds. Out of the whirlwind, God spoke. I wonder if Job expected that. God comes to him after all he's been through and speaks to him out of a storm. He doesn't come to him as a shepherd and pick him up like a, an injured lamb. I'd probably expect that. He doesn't come to him tenderly right now. He doesn't come to him like a father with his small child that's just fallen and been injured. and That's not how God comes to him. This is not... And God's capable of this. This is not a still, small voice. This is not a whisper. This is not the Lord answering Job out of the rustling leaves or the sprinkling of raindrops or the cool autumn breeze. This is God speaking to Job out of the whirlwind. God has done this in Exodus. He has done this in Ezekiel. And it always has this effect. And think about this. And it would make sense to you. It intimidates. Like, no duh, right? Imagine if you were there and the storm is brewing and the voice comes out of the storm and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's rain. God is 
a loving God. God is a tender God. God is a gentle God. God is a compassionate God. And God is a holy God. He's a great God. He's a big God. And it may surprise you, but that's exactly what he wants to communicate to frail, dying Job. You're thinking, God, you're going to kill him. It's striking how God comes to him. And then God speaks in verse 2. He asks Job his first question, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? (laughs) Are you serious? Is Job getting rebuked? Now you may think that he's talking to the friends when God says that. You may think that he's talking to Elihu, but he's not yet. He's talking to Job. I think Elihu is long gone, by the way. (laughs) I think he took off. He's talking to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's talking to Job, and Job knows it. This is a rhetorical question. Job knows the answer to the question. Me. You're talking to me. I have darkened counsel by words without knowledge. Verse 3. Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. It's not what I would expect. Dress for action. Or some translations say, gird up your loins. What is that? Literally, this is God challenging Job to a wrestling match. We're going to fight Job right now. And he lays down the ground rules. The ground rules are, I will question you and you make it known to me. So get ready for some action, Job. And here's how this is going to work. I'll be asking the questions. Out of the whirlwind. I'm, not, I'm intimidated just thinking about this. I mentioned this before, but here is where it is made very clear. God will not be answering any questions. I'm not going to answer your questions. So what questions is God going to ask? Well, there's a lot of them. A lot of them. There's over 50 questions God asks Job in just chapter 38 and 39. Over 50, and he just, he just rattles them off. Job doesn't even get in a word. He's not getting in a word. He just rattles off over 50 questions. Almost every single word that God speaks to Job in the four chapters is within a question. Almost every single word. Verses 4 through 7 of chapter 38. Look with me. Listen to these questions. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? He goes on in verses 8 through 11. He asks about the, the birth and the limiting of the oceans. And then in verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Verse 17. Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Verse 18. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. In verses 22 through 30, he questions Job about the weather. God talks to him about the weather. Verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Have you been deep inside a glacier, Job? Verse 24. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Verse 25. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? Then he points Job to the stars. Starts pointing out different constellations. Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? More weather, verse 34. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Verse 35. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Job, can you do any of these things? Job, do you understand any of this? Job, can you explain any of this? And of course, the answer is no. What is God doing? And then at the end of chapter 38 and into chapter 39, God moves on to the animal kingdom. Chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Verse 5. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? David was talking about this this morning. Going to places and being in places where few have gone before. God says, do you know what's happening right now with the goats in the mountains? Do you know the hour that that goat was born? I was there, God is saying. I planned all of this. I see all of this. It's all going according to my plan. Everything, Job, is going according to my plan. Everything, Job. I know everything. I understand everything. Do you understand any of these things, Job? 
just to God, just these little things. You know, like the ostrich he talks about. Verse 13. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly. Think about the ostrich, by the way. I spent time meditating on the ostrich this week. It's in, it's in God's word. Ostrich, they're, they're really strange creatures. They're, they're birds. They're birds. When a predator shows up, it's a myth I learned that they bury their head in the sand. They don't do that. Silly. I understand the ostrich now. But they do, but they do lay down on the ground flat, like in the middle of a desert. You know, because you can't see it then. The ostrich. I mean, God brings up the ostrich, and He made this thing, and He He made it this way for reasons that we don't understand. It, if you were to ask a bird, like if that could happen, and you were to talk to a bird, and it could answer you. If you were to ask a bird, what is the best thing about being a bird? What's every bird going to say? I can fly. I've got wings. I can fly. The ostrich has wings. It's a bird. But he cannot fly. He's a big joke. And they're not very smart, apparently. Verse 14, first he, and God's just like, just, I just made an ostrich. It's awesome. Verse 13, 14, for she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God made her forget wisdom. <laughs> what? You know who made the ostrich? I mean, this is in his, I mean, This is in his speech to Job. You know who made the ostrich so stupid? That makes it in his speech. I did. I did that. I made these animals smart. I made that animal stupid. He talks about people too. Some have a lot of light. Some don't have so much light. And God says, I'm in charge of that. I made it this way. Verse 19, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Verse 26, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? It's just these questions about the world below, the world above, the world beyond, over and over and over again. Joe, do you understand any of this? Do you know, look around, Job, do you know how creation was established, Job? Do you have the knowledge or the ability to govern all of creation? Do you have the knowledge or the ability to shape the lives of every animal in the animal kingdom? Job, do you? Do you understand any of this? And of course, Job's answer to every one of these questions, over 50 of them, is, I don't know. No. I have no idea. 
I don't understand any of this. He doesn't understand where they came from. He doesn't know how to make them work. He is surrounded by mysteries. Like his suffering. He's surrounded by mysteries. My friends, so are we. We're surrounded by mysteries. I suppose, thanks to scientific advancement, there is a lot we know that Job did not know. I think you'd have to say that's true. There's a lot we know that Job did not know. But there's a trap where we know some things. We become arrogant with the knowledge we have and assume we know more than we actually do. There is still so much beyond our knowledge. I had a professor once acknowledge this. He drew a circle on a board that imagine that this circle within this circle is all knowledge. And then he put a little pinpoint. You couldn't even see it from a few rows back. He said, this is all the knowledge that we have collectively as mankind. Even a scientist who does not believe in God would acknowledge that. You see new reports coming out from Mars and reports coming out about possible life-supporting planets in galaxies that are far, far away that we couldn't ever possibly know for sure, but it's possible. And we're just trying to grasp what's in our galaxy and still trying to learn what's within our galaxy. But then there's the galaxies beyond our galaxy. There's the entire universe and it's breathtaking. And there's so much that we don't know. And so God is saying to Job and he's saying to us, listen, do you understand any of this? Do you know how this works? Yeah, you figured out some things. You got a microscope, congratulations, and a telescope. And you know so much more now than you did then. And you understand molecules and protons and electrons and neutrons. But do you really understand it? Do you know where they came from? Do you know where those protons came from? And do you know how I made them? And do you know the design behind them? And do you know why they're still doing what they're doing? And do you know why things haven't gone this way, but why things have gone... I mean, do you get any of that? Do you know how many galaxies there are? Do you know where I reside? Do you know any of these things? And he's opening this up to Job. And as he's doing this, I mean, Job, of course is feeling smaller and smaller and smaller. And God seems bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is how God will speak to Job. 
So in conclusion, a few things to think about more. I mean, there's two chapters of response from God, and there'll be two more we'll look at next week. Has God answered Job? Has God missed the mark? Did God misunderstand Job's question? Job is asking very clearly for an explanation for his suffering. His suffering, God, don't you know, your suf- this suffering is bringing your goodness and your rightness into question. Will you respond to this, God? Has God explained why the innocent suffer to Job? No, he asked him about the ox and the donkey and the eagle and the hawk and the stars and the sun and the moon and rain and snow and hail and wind. Has God even explained Job's suffering? Has God made sense of these tragedies for Job? Why doesn't God defend himself? Here's your opportunity, God. Your goodness is in question here. Your rightness is in question here. It's what comes into question in your mind when you're suffering. When those you love are suffering. When you hear about innocent suffering. God, are you really good? Or are you really in control? Well, here's your opportunity. And God speaks and opens his mouth and we're thinking, God, are you going to defend yourself? Are you going to explain yourself? Are you going to work this out for us so that we can defend your goodness and your rightness? And God says, no. I'm not going in the dock. I'm not sitting on the stand. I'm not going to be prosecuted. You're not going to ask me questions. I'll be asking the questions. And you will be answering. So so do you feel that? Do you feel this isn't going to work? This is not going to help Job. You're going to turn Job into a non-believer. Job's going to doubt your goodness. Job's going to walk away from you. You can't talk to people like this. Oh, you can talk to Christians like this. You can talk to God's children like this. You can talk to believers like this. It's exactly what they need to hear. In response to Job, God does not explain himself. I did wonder, if if God did explain himself, would Job even understand it? I just think about ways that I've suffered. If God were to come down and give me what I want, you know, and explain it and show me how it all works out and show me the, 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 the one million moving parts in his providence or more, I don't know, that all work together for my life and his glory and my good. I mean, would I even understand that? I can't even figure out how my car moves. 
my friend, Patrick, who's a mechanic, and he helps me with my car, and we're looking at things, and he's explaining, and I'm just nodding and saying, do you understand? And I'm saying, yes, totally lying, just because I don't want to talk about it anymore because I don't get it. I feel stupid. I'm pretty sure if God came to me and just unraveled his providence for me and said, well, this is why that happened, and here's why that happened, and, and then there was this, and then there was that, and then this guy who you'll never know and never meet, and you cross paths, and, this, and it all fits together, and then in the end, and then I'm going to come back, and then here's my glory, and here's your good, and here's how it works out for him, and here's justice, and here's mercy. And Would I even understand the explanation? He doesn't explain himself. Here's what William Henry Green said about this. It might upon the first superficial view of the case appear as though the discourse of the Lord had no particular relevance to the circumstances in which it was uttered. And the question might arise that what these appeals might arise what these appeals to the magnificence of the works of God in nature have to do with the solution of the enigma to which this book is devoted. How did they contribute to the explanation of the mystery that is involved in the sufferings of good men? The fact is, this discourse is not directed to an explanation of that mystery at all. It is not the design of God to offer a vindication of his dealings with men in general or a justification of his providence towards Job. He has no intention of placing himself at the bar of his creatures and elevating them into judges of his conduct. He is not amenable to them, and he does not recognize their right to be censors of him and of his ways. In response to Job, God does not explain himself. He does not answer the why question. In response to Job, God reveals himself. That's what he did, isn't it? So in response to all that Job's been through, God does not explain himself. He reveals himself. That's what he's doing with these questions. God reveals himself as so great and so mighty and so beyond our understanding that he can be trusted. God is not answering Job's question, but he is solving his problem. He's giving him exactly what he needs. He is not answering his question, but he is solving Job's problem. The universe is full of mystery, including the suffering of the innocent. The universe is full of mystery. Our place, and I wonder if this will satisfy you. Our place is not always to know the answers, but to know God, to whom all the answers are known. Job thinks he needs an explanation. God says, You don't need an explanation, Job. You couldn't even handle an explanation. 
you need me. You need God. But God, I'll be able to trust you if you can make sense of this, if you explain this to me, if somebody can explain this to me, then I will trust you. And God's reply is no. If you get a vision for how great I am and how mighty I am, you'll trust me. That's what you need. You don't need to know how this is all going to work out for your good. You need to know that I promise it's going to all work out for your good. You don't need to know how this is going to bring me glory. You need to know that it is going to bring me glory. You don't need to understand all my ways. My ways are higher than your ways. You need to understand that my ways are perfect. You don't need an answer to all your questions. You need to know that I am God. It's going to satisfy Job. It's going to be enough for Job. It's going to be all that he needs. So what about you this morning? Do you need to understand the ways of God? Or do you need to trust Him and love Him and worship Him? Do you need an explanation or do you need a revelation? Do you need God to explain Himself to you or do you need God to reveal Himself to you? Has God revealed himself to you this morning? Maybe God has revealed himself to you again in a new, fresh, exciting way. Maybe God has revealed himself to you for the first time. And you're thinking, God is great. And I'm not. And God is big, and I am so small. And God is the ultimate reality, and I'm just downstream from Him. Maybe it's been revealed to you that you must then be accountable to this God. Maybe there is fear in your heart. You're hearing God say these things out of the whirlwind with a backdrop of thunder and lightning. And you question God and you rebel against God and you don't trust Him unless it makes perfect sense to you and there's lots of things that you don't surrender to him and you don't give up for him and he's just an addition to your life and it's kind of part of your life but you're not really devoted to him you don't really love him with all of your heart, mind, soul and strength 
this God who made everything, who runs the universe, it would be a right response to feel intimidated right now. To feel fearful right now. Friends, that is good, right, first fear. It should turn you to God. And then, here's what you find. And I'll close with reading that text that we're reading together as a church this month from Psalm 103. Yes, God is a holy God, friends. Yes, God will judge you and judge the world. No, you cannot ask God questions and put him in the dock or put him in the hot seat. You are the one whose life is on trial. You are the one who are accountable to God. He is not accountable to you. He's created the entire universe. How ridiculous when we think that he should be accountable to us. But there is hope, so know this. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 10. This Lord, right, who speaks out of the whirlwind, is merciful, and he's gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So there is hope. There is hope that God would not come out of the whirlwind and deal with you according to your sin and deal with you according to your iniquity. But you must turn to love and trust his son, Jesus Christ. If God has revealed something to you today, if you would like to know more about this, if you would like to talk more about this, if you're afraid, I'd be happy to talk to you after service. I'll wait up front. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word, and thank you for the help of your spirit to, to preach this morning. And thank you for the help of your spirit so that we could hear this morning. Lord, I trust as you promised that your word has gone out and it is doing good things in your people. So God, I pray that we would get to see the effects of that today. I pray that cold hearts would be warmed, that hard hearts would be softened, and that people would turn to you. God, help us to remember these truths today and in this week to come. Your greatness, God. What a great God you are. For those of us who love you, for those of us who trust you, for those of us who serve you, we pray that that would be the foundation of all our joy, knowing that you are a great, good God in complete and total control. We love you, and we give you all praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.